Welcome to Beethoven Was a Rockstar. In this podcast, we are exploring the limits between music styles and why we created so many labels to define them. My name is Alexander Rieche, I'm the conductor of Night of the Proms and the music director of the Henderson Symphony Orchestra. I'll be interviewing iconic figures from both classical and pop music to find where the boundaries are and break through them. Before we start, I would like to share with you that Night of the Proms is finally back. After 19 months of silence, we are going to have our summer edition in Coxeira, and as you can imagine, I am beyond excited to be reunited with my Proms family. The concerts will be on July 30th and 31st. Tickets are still available, and I'm looking forward to see you there. Now let's talk about our guest. In this episode, I had the pleasure to chat with the multi-talented Mason Bates, Composer of the Grammy-winner opera The Revolution of Steve Jobs, Mason is one of those rare artists that cannot be confined in a box. You can simply define him as a composer and DJ, but you find out there is more to be discovered. I first met Mason when I was working at the Cabrillo Music Festival in California as the assistant conductor. I immediately was drawn to his creativity, his ability of discovering new colors in the orchestra, and his captivating way of telling a story through music. So, without further ado, let's get started. When your fascination for sound started, when your fascination for music started? Well, I grew up in Virginia, so um, definitely not as cultured a place um, in terms of music as, you know, someplace in New York or like Los Angeles. But I went to a school that was an Episcopal boys school and in Episcopal schools, there's always a, a choir. That choir ended up being my first encounters with classical music. And I never really at the time thought about how impactful it is as a composer to be in a chorus, but it gives you a sense of kind of community music making and appreciation for like how music and community are connected. So that was my first experience as a musician. And in fact, when I first started writing music, just kind of at the piano as a kid, I ended up ultimately starting to write music for piano and sometimes music for chorus, because that's all that I had encountered at that time. So the first musical experiences for me were definitely, you know, more coming out of where I was from. And it took me moving to New York to go to Juilliard for me to get interested and encounter DJing electronic music for the first time. And that really kind of was a second kind of childhood for me, um, encountering um, the most incredible, you know, electronic music from, you know, down tempo all the way into, you know, EDM music or industrial techno. But that didn't come until I was in a place where I could find it. Yeah. And Whenever we read your biography, it says composer, DJ. What are the parallels? What are the differences, if there is any difference on being a DJ and being a composer? Well, it's a really good question because on the surface, they seem pretty different. As you get into it, there are some similarities. Basically, you know, a DJ, for those who don't know exactly what goes on behind the mixing board, the DJ is mixing records. The whole point of a DJ is to make a smooth connection between um, dance tracks so that the music keeps going, but it evolves. I find that really interesting as a composer um, because you're like overlapping different kinds of music and thereby creating some continuity while also creating a kind of evolution. So when I was getting really interested in DJing, you know, 
20 years ago and it moved out to San Francisco during the end of the dot-com boom and was finding all these incredible places to DJ because the tech boom had this kind of legacy of all these parties with DJs are involved with. I found myself thinking a lot about how one kind of music becomes another. How do you transition? And I started to look at my own symphonic music as a little bit too um, compartmentalized. If I had this kind of music here and then I had this kind of music here, there would be often, you know, like a very clear ending of this and we'd begin. After I was DJing for a while, those transitions became like this whole middle ground in the middle became like mm-hmm. a, a third part. You know, if you have an A, B, well, then there's really the C is really what happens between them. So there's similarities in DJing and composing, but it really has to do more with um, how you think about texture, how you think about time. DJing is definitely much longer term um, time formats. You might be mixing for two or three hours, whereas a symphony, you know, might be 45 minutes at the most, um, unless you're, you know, really pushing it into like, you know, Malarian territory. <laughs> so there are a lot of differences um, that make it exciting to be part of both and they can each give you different things. But there are so some similarities that um, really uh, can be leveraged across the two musics. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I really wanted to ask this question to you because when I started working with the proms, it was the first time I had the um, contact with sound engineering and mixings. And, and I started seeing so many parallels with being a conductor, you know, how you balance, how, how we work with colors, how you, you know, and I thought, why we ever divide that? I think that's, you know, there are more similarities than differences than people think. Yeah, and, and a question quickly becomes, you know, why in conservatories don't we have uh, more of a requirement to study production? Not because if you're going to be a violinist in the Chicago Symphony that you need to get up and put your hand on the mixing board and start mixing, mm-hmm. but you might have a much better appreciation for what's going on when you're making a recording or when, let's say, you're doing a show that has lighting and they need to set the lights. So if, if you've studied everything from, from mixing to lighting design, that would make you a richer musician in the same way that it would just study different kinds of vernacular music. So I, I think it's a really good question. Why, classical musicians, to me, could very well benefit from understanding about how production works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every conversation that we are having now, we always come back to music education. Why this is so separate nowadays and how can we change this how can we embrace both worlds and enrich them like because we it's we only gain after you know mixing those those two worlds and coming back to your to your roots uh what are your influences in classical and pop yeah i i, I struggle sometimes thinking about what are the most basic influences for me because as i mentioned earlier you know the there was a, a good span of many years from the beginning of my um, first musical encounters with classical music, which might have been Episcopal church music to eventually, um, let's say, you know, hearing the local orchestra play Gershwin and not really knowing if that was classical or not, to although, you know, all the way into Juilliard when I was, um, you know, studying pretty traditional composition while also getting involved with electronica. If I was going to put just a couple of names out there, I would say that, um, you know, the artists that kind of straddle 
different kinds of genres always have interested me. So um, I mentioned Gershwin, you know, Gershwin like really bumped up both elements of what he was touching, you know, like he bumped up jazz and he definitely bumped up classical music in, in elegant, sophisticated ways that you just can feel, you know, like it's just absolutely music of the body, but uh, because it has a sophistication to it, um, it can can work so well in our concert halls. Um, I, I listened, I was such a Pink Floyd fanatic and psychedelic rock fanatic when I was in, in high school and college, um, you know, music of like the 70s, basically, which was you know, predating me. But I realized now that a lot of the psychedelic English rock that I liked, which which also turned into psychedelic electronic, um, you know, trance and techno, has this great integration of sound design and kind of beats and sometimes even like symphonic backing. When you think of an album like The Wall or something mm-hmm. that has this incredible integration of so many different things. And that certainly there's a straight line between that and my interest in um, a piece, you know, creating a piece like alternative energy that integrates, you know, recordings from the Fermilab particle accelerator in Chicago. So um, then, you know, in terms of the electronic music, I, I first was most interested in what they call IDM. It's kind of a weird name, intelligent dance music. It sort of has political implications, but that's what it's been called. Um, it's like people like Mouse on Mars or Aphex Twin, um, this kind of ambient and I always loved how that music um, would use a variety of beats, not just kind of one four on the floor beat, kind of taking it away from the dance floor and making it more of a kind of intellectual experience. But after I lived in Chicago on and off for, for five years working with the Chicago Symphony, I got totally uh, bitten by the, the techno bug, you know, Chicago house, uh, which kind of to a lot of people now sounds like techno industrial mm-hmm. upper Midwest techno. Um, really fascinates me. And a lot of those roots are always in the African-American communities. And there's a special relationship with like kind of the ashes of Motown and Detroit and the evolution of techno by people like, you know, Warren Atkins and Kevin Saunderson. So um, that's a, that's a big wide uh, listing of things. I, one thing I didn't touch on was just classical, straight up classical. And obviously, you know, I love people that uh, are, kind of bridging um, different genres. I love Berlioz. You know, Berlioz to me is uh, the most vivid kind of programmatic storytelling composer who had to kind of find new sounds to make these giant narrative forms work. I love that. Um, certainly all the programmatic composers like like Wagner, um, I really admire because they, they, they had to find these sounds to animate the stories they were telling. But, you know, into the, the current day, you know, there are people like my teacher John Corleano, um, who very much are kind of a narrative narrative composers who find new sounds. But beyond that, you know, like, I mean, out here, I'm, I'm quite close to John Adams, and I, I wouldn't call him, he'd be really on the other end of the spectrum, more of a, you know, kind of process type of a composer. It's not really about narrative. Um, but John's, you know, his music is so rich and so dynamic and it's really taking the orchestra to a new place um so I, I really love i love his music and i absolutely love you know there are a lot of music of the music of some of my colleagues um from you know anna klein to missy mazzoli to gabriella lena frank um really inspires me you touched the subject of uh storytelling do you consider yourself a storyteller 
First and foremost, really. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really what I think I do. Um, music is a way of telling stories. And, you know, truly, Alex, like my first creative passion was um, was writing stories. And, you know, mm-hmm. everybody has things they did when they were seven, eight, nine years old that are kind of special to them, even if they didn't go anywhere. But, you know, I was always like the little geek who was making his own books and typing things and, you know, kind of publishing them and showing them to friends. And um, I think that for me, music always has to be something that um, is taking you on a journey. And that doesn't mean it always has to have like a literal program to it. In fact, you know, when you're writing a piano concerto or something, you know, it's sometimes best to to step away from a narrative uh, approach because it can, can overwhelm the point of the piece, which is to showcase the piano. But um, in so many situations, even a purely musical form has a kind of narrative to it. So I do find myself uh, identifying with the, the topic uh, or the, the, uh, the title as storyteller. And you also have this background as a writer. Do you still write? Yeah, I mean, the, the way it's evolved is now kind of going into to film and, and film production. You know, example is this film that I've just finished. Um, it's a 30-minute animated film um, called Philharmonia Fantastique. Making yes, I saw that. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm well, looking you. forward yeah, I mean, to see it. Oh, man. It's a different kind of writing because it's not like you know, you're writing a book, but you're. it has basically, you know, writing is sort of creating this narrative experience. And so in that case, there are no words to it. So what does it mean to write it? Um, that means, hey, there's this incredible medium, which is a screen in front of an orchestra. And everybody's doing it these days with, you know, like, Home Alone or Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars, can we create something new for that medium that can really contribute to our our field? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Home Alone is great, um, but it's not really a piece of classical music. And so what would the story be? In that case, um, I worked with this Lucasfilm director and sound designer named Gary Rydstrom and this wonderful animator named Jim Capobianco, who used to do a lot of work at Pixar and, you know, wrote Ratatouille and whatnot. And the story became, you know, there's a, a kind of sprite that has to fly inside these instruments to understand how they work and how you tell the story, you know, like you really have to think about story. And in that case of animation, like storyboard, what do you see? How does the sprite get in there? Then you get all kinds of questions like, well, you got a 30 minute piece, you know, is it just looking at instrument by instrument or maybe there's some kind of conflict, you know, maybe the, the four tribes of the orchestra need to kind of, synthesize and overcome their differences and that's where storytelling is very important you know whether you're working in that medium or like you know just today i've been speaking with the librettist gene Shear, who's writing an opera with me for the met and um you know gene is writing the libretto but like very much i'm talking to him on every page of that trying to figure out how the story evolves and so for me storytelling kind of verges into production but it, it's always basically like thinking about how does the kind of basic elements, emotional elements of the story that you're experiencing, how do they kind of like go from one piece to the next? And how are you going to animate that, whether it be with film or uh, staging or, or just pure music? That's fascinating. And I'm so happy that you don't stay with one in one box, so to speak. You really do the crossover among genres and different art forms. And I think that this, as I mentioned before, I think that this just enriches 
as, as artists. And with that note, composer, DJ, writer, film producer, have you ever felt that the industry was confused by all your talents and not knowing where to put you or what to fit you or how to, between commas, sell you? I mean, just first of all, one, one little thing I'd say is that, you know, no matter, no matter where life takes me, I always feel like composer, DJ is kind of like the way I would describe myself. I mean, you can always attach these different, um, you know, educator or, you know, activist, you can, do, you can attach all these things to it, but, but truly, you know, I would say to, I like to keep it simple in terms of like, who am I? And um, while I do stick with that, true, within the space of our, of our field, it's, it's a little bit unusual to have um, have an artist who is like kind of moving the ball in, in different ways. I mean, certainly we have plenty of people that, that do that, but certainly the, the field is based on like this composer writes this kind of music, um, this performer does this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a challenge to have um, the perception of oneself feel accurate when the field only kind of sees from the outside looking in. It sometimes just takes the field a little bit of time to catch up. Um, an example I'd say is like, you know, with DJing, you know, I always felt like the DJing for me was such a serious endeavor that I was really spending so much time doing um, here in San Francisco or in Chicago or wherever, you know, spinning parties and really throwing myself into it. And it felt like people would come into it and be like, you know, is this like, like a bedroom project or is this like something you seriously do? And it's like, just because people wouldn't know. And I'd be like, you know, yeah. I mean, like I opened for Moby at like a 5,000 person warehouse party in San Francisco dressed as a prison priest with like face tattoos as a, at a Halloween <laughs> this was like a serious endeavor. I threw, I threw myself into it, but because people only kind of like parachute into your world for a second, they, it's hard for them to know. And, and beyond that, as you mentioned with your own pursuits, people really want to be able, especially um, administrators who, whose job almost it is to figure out what the box is. They really want to know, okay, what is it? Are you this or that? And particularly in things like classical formats, that's a challenge, you know, like, I understand that the classical pop format is perceived to be, you know, music of like Cole Porter or, you know, like a certain kind of jazz. And that's what it's got to be. Why can't, you know, why can't it become a little bit more like um, any kind of kind of music that's reaching outside of, um, you know, orchestral music and bring it into some cool way. And then you kind of get down to like, well, why couldn't, you know, a piece like Mothership open a pops concert and have you know like sure you can get to the traditional pops music and and people there are good reasons why they say that, that that doesn't happen that's not what the audience expects but just to your point like there's absolutely no reason that a conductor today can't move between those worlds in a way that's really convincing so i i think i do think the field i'm never going to like denigrate our field because i love it i just think that sometimes mm -hmm. there there's some catching up that needs to happen no, definitely. I think that the I agree with you. There is a sketching up that we that it needs to happen for sure. And I have been talking to lots of uh, managers and, and orchestra administrators, and I do understand that sometimes they need a last minute 
um, choice, you know, someone is going to conduct Mozart. So who is a specialized in Mozart? So they call that person who is, you know, and then you start being labeled as the Mozart conductor and people forget that you can do Brahms, you can do Mahler, you can, you know. So, yeah, I think that that's, um, that's something that, as you said, we need to, we need to catch up. And also, one of the things that I loved about your work is that you're expanding the barriers, including the electronica to the orchestra. What was your inspiration for that? I think the first electroacoustic piece I did was in 1999. Um, it was called uh, Sounds for His Animation. It was a synthesizer concerto, which you cannot hear and you won't hear because it's, I think it's the only piece of mine that I've kind of just withdrawn from my catalog. I usually try to make sure that I spend enough time on a piece that I, I'm happy to see it at any point in my life. But, you know, it was like when I was, I don't know, 25 years old or 23 years old that I kind of first like wanted to do that. Um, the real like first symphonic pieces that I wrote that really have stayed in the, in the repertoire are pieces like Rusty Air in Carolina um, and Liquid Interface which were, you know, written for orchestras in the United States that were willing to kind of go with me on this journey. And for me, the, the reason that some of my early attempts um, to me didn't really go beyond kind of first try was that I was being a little too literal with just including beats in my symphonic works. Like I would just take like techno beats and kind of slam them into a symphonic setting and the electronic sounds would be purely um, relegated to beats. The real revelation for me was that if you're going to have these speakers, which it's not that difficult logistically, but it's a psychological barrier for some orchestras to cross, um, then you can have any sound in the world and you can have more poetic sounds and you can even maybe sort of do things like, you know, the Ninth Symphony, when you suddenly have a chorus singing, and they're singing about, you know, peace and brotherhood and all that, suddenly you can have like content. And so Rusty Air in Carolina was in a very early piece that took this kind of field recordings of, of my Southern childhood, like insect noises, like crickets and cicadas and cicadas, and kind of had this ambient piece of those. And then it kind of became this Southern blues plus this like insectoid techno beat that came out of like sampled insects. So right there you can see, if you can go from having beats and now you have kind of ambient sounds, suddenly you can tell stories in a way that you, you couldn't even do with, with a full orchestra. So the revelation for me was that um, the electronic element can be part of the storytelling. It doesn't have to be just a rhythmic element. And that's where you get Pieces like Alternative Energy, which have a particle accelerator spinning around, or Art of War, um, which is a recent piece that um, I literally went to like Camp Pendleton and recorded Marines blowing things up. And I really wanted to have that, that sound in the symphony. That's what electronic sounds can do. And um, I absolutely see that as a kind of continuation of what uh, started back in you know the 19th century with bringing in everything from a chorus to widening the percussion ensemble. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're thinking not only about expanding the orchestra and the orchestra sounds, but also 
thinking outside of the box of the concert halls. Um, and I'm talking specifically about the Mercury Soul. So can you tell us a little bit about the Mercury Soul? Yeah, Mercury Soul is essentially a, a club show that happens at, you know, commercial clubs with kind of like a SWAT team of classical players that just sort of appear fluidly within the mix of the DJ set and through lighting and stagecraft and, and pretty elaborate sound design, suddenly like, the, the classical musicians are kind of coming to focus and there'll be a blackout at just the right moment. And next thing you know, you know, they might be playing Stravinsky concertino or, you know, a piece by Pergolesi or something very old. What's the point of it? The point of it is to bring classical music into clubs in a way that is not like a jarring kind of uh, surprise, but more like shows the continuity from the music of the very distant past all the way up to what's happening today. And I started here in San Francisco years ago with a conductor named Benjamin Schwartz. And it's now evolved into um, a pretty robust nonprofit that's not only presenting club shows with people like Juan Atkins, you know, the founder and inventor of techno from Detroit with a chamber orchestra, to we've now kind of gone into becoming a kind of production company where we're making kind of compelling classical music videos that can really get beyond sort of single camera um, performance video that we all are aware of. It's kind of like, it's gotta be so good that it looks good if the music's off, if, you know, you just have to like really bring the the viewer into the experience. So in, a, in one sense, Mercury Soul kind of animates classical music in ways that um, can be appealing to people in the 21st century while never leaving the substance and the deep listening of, of our field behind. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because when we look back, at least when I look back, I, and I see the format that we got with the orchestra, it's only one century that we have that tradition of concert halls, mostly like like church-like. You have rules, you don't clap, you don't do certain things. You know, so right. that's the way that our audiences are being uh, uh, educated, so to speak. So I really wonder, because it's relatively new, if you think that that started in the beginning of the 20th century, it's relatively mm-hmm. new. So yeah. I wonder where this is going to expand. And when I saw your memory, so it was like, wow, I think that this is this can really develop to, you know, to a new 90th century and bringing back what was what was in the past. So I thought more. Yeah, I, I thought I love it. Well, thanks. You know, um, I, I do think that you know the, the concert halls we have around the world, um, as you know, you know, are like amazing places to hear music, oh, yeah. and and they'll always be here. But the question is, like, is there a way we can think about the format and how we present this music that can protect basically, uh, this field, you know, when I say protected, I mean, like, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get like, we shouldn't go extinct because the vibe sucks, you know, like, yeah, when you go to a concert, even at an orchestra that I love, um, the vibe is challenging for people that, that don't know how to get used, they haven't gotten used to it. So Mm -hmm. like the lighting is, is very bright. Um, 
there's this business of like, what's this piece about? Oh, you got to read this book. Um, there are all these kind of weird pauses while like the set changes. Um, is there a way we can like address that and maybe make those changes opportunities? And, and for me, it goes back to what we were talking before. Um, it seems like a weird thing to focus on, but it's my like absolute obsession. You know, it's production. You know, production is the way that we protect what we do because, you know, no one is going to ever like you can't take deep listening and patience and, and an hour of listening out of classical music. That's what we do. We're not going to make it all just covers of rock songs and call it an orchestra concert. We've got to mm-hmm. play Janacek and, you know, like the music of Barbara Strozzi. You know, we need to play that music. But I do think we could, um, in the concert halls that we know of, um, make a much more theatrical experience. It basically means, um, you know, I think darkening things up, creating a more mysterious event, um, having, you know, information kind of appear like, you know, projected or, um, you know, flat screens around the audience when there's like a set change or when you have all those this dead moments so that like you could get thrown out of a van and go to a concert and you could just being there, be educated about what you're going to hear while you're having a drink beforehand or while you're kind of waiting for things to start. You might hear an interview with the oboist. You might have a big solo or the pianist who is the soloist in the piece. And basically without any work um, and in a very enjoyable way, you've kind of become prepared. And so I think that um, you, you kind of need to sort of retrofit some concert halls to do this. It does. It's not as expensive as retrofitting the Bay Bridge. It's more just like, hey, the National Symphony, you already have a lighting rig in the concert hall. Mm-hmm. Why don't you use it in the same way that you do for Pops concerts? Like, why don't we animate what the orchestra is doing? And this business of information for me is, is kind of obsession. Like at all Mercury Solvents, we have um, information everywhere. As you're hearing a piece, we try to like dial it down so your focus is on the musicians. But you can't escape those things without like saying, oh, yeah, I, I didn't realize it. You know, Beethoven was completely deaf by the Fifth Symphony or whatever. Hopefully more deep, deep, deep info than that. But um, that's the vision with Mercury's soul. And that might always be like a special kind of off-site um, club-like event that really has to really compete more with actual club shows. But I think that in our field, we can do more adventurous music than we do now if we make the experience the thing that people most think about like if you go to the um if you're gonna go to like the memphis symphony and you just know it's oh yeah it's always cool like they have this cool party beforehand and then the concert is really theatrically lit and then there's a neat post party with like local blues musicians from memphis it doesn't matter then if you're gonna play um you know the onager pacific 231 or whatever like so we want to have programming freedom and i think the less that marketing departments can focus on like, um, well, uh, Mozart doesn't sell as well as Beethoven and just more like the experience of the San Francisco symphony or whatever. That's why you go. I totally agree. I think that we miss lots of opportunities with concert halls that have the equipment that it's not, you know, it shouldn't be that expensive. It just needs to be creative. It's not that hard. It's, not that yeah, hard. it's, it's not. like a projection. Yeah. I mean, the th- I will say Alex, it's, it's not 
as expensive or difficult to change the vibe in a very meaningful way. But I, to be honest with you, it's hard to do it well. And that's why, honestly, Mercury yeah. Soul, I mean, I'm not trying to like hawk our wares here, but you know, Mercury Soul has is, is become kind of a consultant company for how to present information in a way. Because, for example, um, if you go, let's just say you go to a show, concert hall, and there's a giant movie screen behind the orchestra, even though it's not really like a movie night. Um, that you know, that kind of feels like a drive-in movie or something, right? So maybe there's a way you can you you know wall map your projections so that they can appear on the walls without making it seem like you're watching a movie. So that's like a little piece of execution, um, or you know exactly what information appears between things. Mm-hmm. So is, is that it takes some finesse to do it, but um, it's not out of reach for anybody. Yeah, to, to think beyond the screens. You don't really only need the screens to do certain certain things. Right, you know? so, yeah. yeah it's... Well, I mean, I think I've given kind of my, my vision for like how um, production and stagecraft and like ambient information can um, make the experience much more fluid and seamless um, without trampling on the music itself. You know, nobody really wants to see a video like the obvious examples, like, do you really need to see like a video of NASA landing on Mars while you hear the whole planets, you know, you don't really, so that's be kind of cheesy, but you can, you can do it in, in ways that are very animated with lighting and projections between pieces. Um, the bigger piece really, I mean, it's, it's, or maybe it's hand in hand. It's, it's how do we, how do we change, um, how do we educate people? And yeah. you know, honestly, the uh, it's unfortunate, but there's not really a simple solution. Like people want to say, well, you need to change the makeup of your orchestra right now. Um, even though there's a blind audition and whatnot, it's not right. You got to change it. And I understand the impetus there, but it is only so much you can do looking at the end of the pipeline. We need to have just instruments in people's hands when they, when they're kids. And, and so, like, if we start building that now, um, there's been so much effort by so many orchestras to address this, but no orchestra is really capable of, like, you know, teaching, like, putting an instrument in every kid's hands. You know, this is where you need somebody with real resources to not say, hey, I'm going to give it to, I don't know, upgrading everybody's computers because I found a computer company. I think that's great. It's like... No, like the impact you could make by um, expanding musical instrument education in this country um, would be like decades long impact. So Mm -hmm. I I think we have to kind of, there's no escaping it without the music education piece. That's how it happens. And so, you know, a film like Philharmonia Fantastique, it's very much about inspiring young people to realize that these instruments are, uh, you know, as, as interactive as as an iPad and they have certainly hundreds more years of history to them, but then you need some, you need like the community waiting there to say, well, Hey, in this underprivileged area, um, we can bring these, make these teachers available. And it, you know, there's like a whole thing. It's like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like the sports it are for our mm-hmm. kids. Not, I mean, not so much our particular kids, but you know, if somebody stops playing football, like, the team is like, hey, what happened? You know, like there's like this thing. 
Yeah. And so we, we kind of need a like the sort of in a way, I mean, pretty grand ambition, but sports is a way that we can model what we want to do in a lot of ways. And not only just this issue of education and community, but even up to like like live like live sports. I mean, the model is like you can see it on TV, but if it's you know, you really want to be there in the stadium, that's kind of like what we want. Like yeah, like you should be able to catch the Chicago Symphony um, post-COVID 2025 or 2030, like in a beautifully shot thing that you could see. But, you know, obviously if you go there, that's a premium experience. And so there are actually some some like lessons in other completely non-artistic areas that could help us with both the educational beginning of the pipeline mm-hmm. and the end of the pipeline kind of experiential. No, I think that's, I agree with you. I think that education is a, is a key Um and I think also you you mentioned about giving an instrument, but uh, you yourself started as a as a choir singing in a choir, yeah. you know. And this is like it's the it's the cheapest instrument that we ever have, <laughs> you know. Is the human voice, and I don't see much of that type of uh, education also being developed, you know. In Brazil, the singing in a choir is something huge, you know, because we don't have much resources to give instruments to kids. So whenever you have music education, you start with voice. So, I mean, cheapest is not the, the best word to say, but I think that that's also something that we have to rethink. And yeah, no, I, to- I totally agree with you. And modeling with sports, it's I am so jealous of sports. <laughs> right. I, because, you know, it's I think we lack that passion, you know, if someone to drop an instrument, it's rare someone to ask like, but hey, like the team comes and say like, hey, what do you, you, I think that it's this exactly is part of like, Yeah, it's frustrating because, um, I don't mean like just my community, but you know, like many communities in America, the Silicon Valley area is like, um, there's like the, the truly most important thing that many parents focus on is sports and it's they talk about it in the way that maybe in Jewish families or in, you know, like families of like European descent from a while ago might have talked about instruments, you know, yeah. how many sports do you play? What yeah. sports do you play? Yeah. Back, in a way, there's an alternate version of that. That's like, what kind of music do you play? What instruments do you play? And there, I, I think that it's not like as long as the music making is fun and social and not the kind of annoying crap that is presented to a lot of public school kids if they actually have music mm-hmm. education is pretty pretty boring like yeah it's not kind really. of crap music um it has to be fun and social but like then then you'd have so much more buy-in and so it, i think it it could be lots of different local efforts um and i know there are some big foundations that support this but it would really take uh, a kind of visionary person to throw in you know like yep a fair amount of money that would encourage in ways that aren't just like let's learn middle C, but just like music making of all sorts in mm-hmm. into a variety of places. And one thing that I notice also with the pandemic is that we also need to educate the audience in another level of that they are also part of the performance. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I, it's very tricky how you do that. because like, on the one hand, you don't want to go out and say, everybody clap whenever you want because it, oh, it, yeah. you know, it feels a little heavy handed, right? But <laughs> yeah. I, I wish that um, 
we could change this this issue of when you clap. And it's crazy because you know what we really want is people to feel like I just I'm always on the side of of more life in the concert hall. So if, mm-hmm. if people burst out and start clapping between movements, I have zero problem with that. You know, yeah, that's great. I mean, I mean, shit. Even if people want to like start booing, I mean, that's <laughs> it's not very nice. But it you know at least when that happens at, at like the Metropolitan Opera, you're kind of like. I don't know. I'm like, I feel like I'm in a soccer game or this is exciting, you know? Um, so I, 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 I see what you're saying. Like the audience is an important piece of, of that conversation. No, definitely. So let me give some quick questions here. Best advice you ever received. Be as creative with your career as you are with your music. And advice to the next generation. Sometimes if, you're not finding what you want you have to make your own weather so is there yeah. any current or future projects that you're working on that you'd like to talk about well i mean we mentioned philharmonia fantastique making the orchestra which is going to be released um hopefully in this fall hopefully on a streaming platform in your home and also played live in concert by you know san francisco chicago philadelphia not philadelphia uh, pittsburgh um national and dallas um I'm running a concerto for Daniil Trifonov right now, which has Ooh, been incredibly yeah. something to cling to during COVID. Um, I'm writing a, a, a kind of a opener for Philharmonia Baroque. It's very cool to write for period instruments when you're when you're offered that opportunity. Um, it's like writing for a bunch of ghosts in a cool way. Um, the opera, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, is set to come out um, at the Met in 2025. So that'll be hopefully right before the asteroid hits the planet with the dinosaurs on it. Um, uh, well, one thing that I should, it's not really a piece, but, you know, I've been doing a fair amount with Mercury Soul to make these kind of music, classical music videos. And so definitely take a look at mercurysoul.com for some upcoming, um, you know, very beautiful and thrilling classical music videos that have everything from, you know, Barbara Strozzi from the 17th century all the way up to Rob Garza of the Thievery Corporation of the 21st century. Um, so that's that's a real passion project, something that I work on as a kind of producer and composer. Um, so there you have it. You have everything from a piano concerto to an opera to a music video to an animated film. And um, I'm really thankful to talk with you. And well, like, thank you. Alex, definitely going to keep track of all these uh, podcasts because you're asked the right questions. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to Beethoven Was a Rockstar. And for more information, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channel. See you next time.